In the book, I Surrender, Patrick Morley writes that the church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives, but not subtract sin. It's a change in belief without a change in behavior. It's revival without reformation or repentance. So we're on week three of this series on the letter to the Philippians. And so far, all we've really been doing is working our way through the introduction. Uh, so up to this point, it's become clear that uh, Paul had a very deep love for the people in Philippi. They, they've been his friends since the very beginning. They've been partners with him. You know, some cities, when he went to preach, uh, the people in the city would stone him or drag him out of the streets or people get mad and riot. Uh, and he didn't get thrown in jail in Philippi at one point, but for the most part, when he starts to preach to people, they just responded. And so he was very close with them from the beginning. He lived with them for quite a while and, and worked and taught with them. But despite everything that they had going for them, they were still in need of some growth as well. There was still room for them to grow further in their faith. They definitely had figured out how to love like Jesus. The amount of support that they gave to Paul and the other churches was impressive, but they still had some things that they needed to work on. When this letter was written, Paul was under house arrest, and we kind of talked a bit about that last week, how... There was a Roman guard chained to his wrist 24-7, whether he was sleeping or eating or using the washroom or writing letters. There was always someone physically chained to his wrist. So he was obviously frustrated with his circumstances because he wanted to be out preaching the gospel. But he was under house arrest. And at the same time, there were people out there who were taking advantage of the fact that he was locked up to boost their own popularity uh, but despite all of that, the good news about Jesus was spreading rapidly through the Mediterranean region. It was overcoming each and every obstacle that was put into its path. And because the mission was so much bigger than Paul is why this was happening. Uh, it wasn't just about one man and what he was doing. But at the same time, Paul was still under house arrest. And he knew that at any time they could decide to execute him for his faith. So these letters that he was writing, they were very personal. Uh, they were uh, written with an understanding that this could be the last communication he ever has with these people. So he doesn't waste his words. His words are important. He knows that this might be the last thing he ever has to say to them, so he tells them what he thinks they need to hear. And what they needed to hear was that their conduct matters. Their behavior and their decisions matter. They'd, ha they'd added Jesus to their lives, and the love of Jesus was overflowing through them and out into the world, and that was awesome. But they still had some things to work on, too. And so Paul locked up. He reminds them, in this uh, passage we're going to read today, that behavior and conduct matters. And if it was that important for Paul to remind them of back then, knowing that he might die at any time, then it's also important for us to recognize and apply as well. 
So if you have your Bible, uh, today we're going to be in verses 19 to 30 of chapter 1. And this is going to finally get us out of that introduction in chapter 1 that we've been in. Uh, and I'll just read this. I, I believe I have NIV here. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that in no way I will be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, that will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So that's a lot of verses, um, and we're going to kind of go through it all today. Uh, but because it was so much, I just want to go back before I start studying this and just read that first verse or two, just so that we know where we're at. Um, so just starting at the beginning, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then comes that famous verse, for to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. And most Christians have heard that last bit at some point in their lives or multiple times in their lives. It's a very famous verse. So the first thing I want to point out here in these first verses is that he says that through their prayers and God's provision, he will be delivered. And despite everything in here, in this point, he is not necessarily talking about his physical release from prison as a sure thing. As just a farther bit down, we see that he hopes that he will have courage whether he faces life or death. What this is really getting at is salvation. Whether the effect or the result of all these prayers and God's provision will be his release, or whether it will just make his enemies angrier, resulting in his death, he is satisfied the result of all of it will be good. He knows that whether he is released or put to death for his faith, he will ultimately be vindicated. Now, when he says that he eagerly expects and hopes that he will in no way be ashamed, but be courageous, this is a reflection of the intensity to which Paul personally felt the call of God on his life. He's saying even if he's put to death, his only hope is that he will do nothing in the process to embarrass Jesus, and that his life would preach the good news of him until his dying breath. And Paul considered that 
calling to be more important than life itself. His main concern, even in this moment, was to stand up as an advocate of the gospel, to maintain its truth and exhibit its spirit. He's so focused on that that he's not preoccupied with his own fate as much as he is with the outcome that his fate might have on the church. All he really cares about is that whatever happens to him, that it will glorify Jesus. When he speaks of the provision of the Holy Spirit here, the word that we translate as provision, it has a, a more literal translation of support. Um, and it kind of carries the idea of the connotation of the way that a ligament supports parts of the body. And this is kind of how he sees the Holy Spirit working in this situation while he's in prison, is it's kind of supporting him like a ligament supports the different parts of your body. No matter what happens, what is most important to him is that his conduct and behavior would do nothing to embarrass the church of Jesus, but instead that his conduct and behavior would preach the good news of Jesus until he's either released or put to death. And he believes that through the prayer of the Philippians and through the support of the Holy Spirit, he will be able to do this task. And then comes the famous verse for, to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That, that verse is kind of like a magnifying glass into Paul's heart. His sole purpose in life was to glorify Jesus. It was the single purpose of his soul, which he devoted to with as much singleness and devotion as anyone has ever done, I would argue. He had a purpose to know as much of Jesus as it was possible to know, to become as fully acquainted with him as it was possible to be, with his character, his plans, and he made it his mission to share that with as many people as he possibly could. To him, the statement to live as Christ literally means if I am alive, Jesus and his ministry are the only thing, the only thing that matters. And I feel like we've kind of lost that sense of urgency and importance uh, as Christians and as the church. It was a lot easier for them to feel that. They, they'd just been with Jesus a few decades prior. Paul had met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And the other apostles, they literally lived with Jesus for three years. And they told them personally, he was coming back soon. Now, we don't know what soon means to God, and they didn't know then. But in a human sense of, or um, meaning of terms, soon means soon. Like if I say, you know, I'm going to clean the bathroom, and Larissa says, well, if you could do that soon, that'd be great. Like she expects I'm going to do that in the next couple hours. And if I don't, I might be in trouble. <laughs> but to God, soon doesn't necessarily mean soon the way that we mean it. To them, they, they knew Jesus. They, they talked to him. They, they lived with him. He said he was coming back soon. And they did their ministry with that sense of urgency that he could come back soon. And they needed to save as many people as they could. Now, after 2,000 years, it's harder for us to feel that sense of urgency. But I think it's important that we do. Not just to his mission to make disciples of all nations, but that is important as well. But also his personal calling on each of us to live 
lives that resemble Jesus. <clears throat> this statement, to live as Christ by Paul, it indicates a purpose to imitate Jesus. And Paul definitely felt that purpose and lived it. To make the life of Jesus the model of his own life, a calling to allow Jesus' spirit to reign in his heart. And we know just from reading this letter and the rest of his letters, Paul never came to regret that calling. He never felt that he had an unworthy purpose in life. And he never wished that his purpose had been different when his life uh, was in jeopardy, when he faced death. And if it was Paul's duty to live like this, with this sense of urgency, uh, to, to not just spread the gospel, but also to live the way that Jesus lived, I would argue it's no less the duty of every other Christian. I'm not talking about necessarily traveling around the world as an evangelist, some are called to that, but the personal pursuit of Christ-likeness in our lives. Because what was there in Paul's life that made it his duty to live in pursuit of Christ-likeness that does not exist in the lives of every other Christian on earth. Because I believe that no true believer, when it is their turn to die, whether they're on the mission field or whether they just die in old age, I don't believe that any true believer will regret that they lived in pursuit of Jesus. Verses 22 through 24, If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I, depart to des I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. I don't want to talk about this part too, too much, but obviously we know Paul didn't really get to choose whether he lived or died. That's not what's happening here. What's happening is he's kind of saying, if it was up to me, this is what I'm thinking. I don't really know what I would choose. As far as he wishes, as far as his own personal life and desires matter, he would rather die and be with Jesus if it was just his own personal desires that mattered. But he comes to the conclusion that as far as the mission of Jesus goes, and as far as spreading the gospel goes, it is much better for the church that he does not die yet, but stays with them a little while longer to continue ministering. And so because of that, he comes to the conclusion that if that was what would be better for the church and the gospel, then that must be what God's plan is uh, for me to stay with you. But the reality is that he's kind of having a hypothetical conversation here. He doesn't know no what's going to happen. Verse 27 says, Whatever happens, whether I live, whether I die, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. And this is kind of where our focus is today. This is kind of what I identified through studying as the, the real center of everything here. But it's interesting because by telling them that they should conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, 
it implies by nature that there is a way of living that is not worthy of the gospel. There is a standard. Lead your lives as a citizen of heaven, as someone who has been changed in all relations of life. As members of the church, in the way that we talk, the plans that we make, our dealings with others, our conduct and walk in the church and out of the church should all be done in a way that reflects the good news of Jesus. And that is what is to distinguish us from others. There is a proper way to live that reflects Jesus. Now something else is implied by this statement that we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that is that we should know what that means. Because if there's a way to live that's worthy of the gospel, we, we should know what it means to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. And the only way to do that is to study his word. And this is so important because people watch us and they see how we live. We want to be a reflection of Jesus to the world around us because our actions and conduct preach the gospel just as much as our words do. Sometimes louder than our words do. And, and that's why it's so important. Paul here is speaking to the inner life of the Christian community in Philippi. This is the standard that he wanted to see in that church. So what does that look like? What is the result of that conduct? And Paul says, the result is standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And notice it doesn't say agreeing about everything, but you're still one church with one mission striving towards that one goal. Unity. Unity doesn't necessarily mean you agree about everything, but it does mean that you are one body working together for one purpose and one goal. And that is the result of a church that pursues conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. He then says that if the Philippian church does this, if they conduct themselves in this manner, worthy of the gospel of Jesus, they also won't be frightened in any way by those who oppose them. And this is something that um, we don't understand as well. You know, we, we certainly have opponents in, in the Western church, but it's not the same as the opponents that they had. Um, not yet, anyway. Um, but he says that this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that the Philippians will be saved. They had opponents that were throwing people in jail and executing people. And so this is really speaking to just the basic human emotions here because, you know, it's one thing to say we'll trust in God, but at the same time, we're human and we're, we feel emotions such as fear. And so, obviously, if you were being you know, pursued and um, threatened by the government that you lived under, you might be afraid. Um, you know, there's places in the world where they still feel that uh, as the church. So he's, he's speaking to this to give them courage. He says, if they are in Jesus, they don't need to be afraid of their opponents anymore. And that lack of fear will be a sign to their opponents that they are opposing God himself. And then he says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And this one always kind of got me. Uh, it was kind of interesting. He says it's been granted to them. God has conceded them this 
privilege or advantage of suffering. And we don't normally think of suffering as a privilege in our society. Um, I certainly don't. But for the apostles and for the church, suffering for Jesus' sake was an honor. If the suffering was brought on to you for the sole reason that you were a Christian, then you were suffering for Jesus himself, and that was a privilege. It is a privilege for us to believe in Jesus, because it is by such faith that our sins are forgiven, that we are reconciled with God, and that we have the hope of heaven. So suffering for that is also a privilege. It is all considered a privilege. Okay, so we've gone through this passage and studied it, so now let's talk about why it matters. Why does our conduct and behavior matter? Why does it matter how we live our lives as the church today? So first of all, conduct matters because it testifies. When Paul wrote this letter, he was under house arrest, potentially facing a death sentence. He didn't know yet. He dedicated his life to the ministry of Jesus, preaching the good news wherever he went and traveling far all around the Mediterranean region. And that ministry had cost him a lot. He'd suffered greatly on behalf of Jesus. But now he was potentially facing death because of it. And by Roman law, he really didn't deserve to die for what he was doing. He was not inciting an insurrection against the emperor. He was simply preaching a new faith to people. And they were not allowing him to practice and preach it freely. They were getting in the way of his ministry. Now, by the standards of the church today, in, in 2021, how should he have reacted to a government that was getting in the way of his faith and ministry? I know that during COVID, I have seen some very interesting positions taken by Christians and church leaders around the world, many who I consider to be friends, and I still consider to be friends. You know, I've seen Christians and churches starting petitions and organizing rallies to protest lockdowns, holding church services without restrictions in lockdown zones, refusing to wear masks. I've even seen Christians saying that the vaccines are the mark of the beast. And I guess this has just been really bothering me this week, uh, just with all the, the cases in Nova Scotia and, and seeing some of this going on. But how did Paul react to his ministry being held back? How did he react to being arrested unjustly? His absolute and utmost concern in this situation was that through his words and through his actions and conduct that Jesus would be glorified and preached. Whether he lived or died was an afterthought. His own life was an afterthought. The only reason he cared about whether he lived or died was how it would affect the church and how his death might impact the church. That's the only reason he even cared about his own life. Paul was concerned that no matter what happened to him, that his conduct would preach Jesus to anyone who saw him. People are watching us. Our action and our behaviors are preaching a message to them. Is our conduct preaching and testifying the good news of Jesus? Or is our conduct preaching something else? Second, our conduct matters because it verifies. We know from Romans that we are saved through grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a free gift that we are offered. We can't earn it. We do not earn our salvation. And yet, 
We know from the book of James that faith without works is dead. Does this mean that works save us? No. Jesus saves us through grace. But a saved person is no longer the same person they once were once they've been saved. They can't be. They become dead to sin and alive in Jesus. Faith produces action as a result of the free gift of salvation that we receive, we become a new creation, and the Holy Spirit begins to change us and make us new and holy. And what is the result of holiness? Definitely not sin. So let me read that quote again that I started with today. The church's integrity problem is in the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. It is revival without reformation or repentance. Listen, your, your works do not save you, but your life should look like someone who has been changed from a free gift of salvation. If your life looks exactly the same as it did before you were saved, there's no change at all. According to James, your faith is dead. James 2 verses 19 to 20 says, you say you have faith, for you believe there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Now again, anytime I read this in James, I always go back four or five times and say, does this mean that your conduct saves you? No, it does not. Don't take that away from this. But the result of being saved freely is becoming a new creation. It, it, it's a verification of a change that's happening in your life. Paul asked the Philippian church to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel so that he would hear and know that they were united in pursuit of the gospel. It was a health indicator for him. It demonstrated how they were doing as the church. And likewise, our actions and our behavior also act like a heart monitor. If faith without works is dead, then our conduct matters. Because it shows us our spiritual state, both as individual believers and as the church body as a whole. And then third, conduct matters because it unifies. And the implied opposite here, logically, is that our conduct can divide as well. We haven't seen anything in Philippians yet to suggest widespread division in the Philippian church, but it's implied that there is division there by the fact that this statement is here. Paul was calling them to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel for a reason. And that reason was so that they would be united. Because unity is important. Listen to this prayer of Jesus. This is when he's in the garden praying in John 17. He says, and again, Jesus, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. That's all of us. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. That glory is the Holy Spirit. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. 
This is Jesus' prayer for the church. That we would experience such perfect unity that the world will know Jesus. When the church is united, that is when the world sees and believes in Jesus. When we are divided, it pushes them away. Now, if our conduct can divide, it can also unify. Conduct that is worthy of the gospel can unify, and that's what Paul is asking the Philippian church. The more concern they showed for each other, and the more effort they put into living like Jesus individually, the more unity they would find as a church, because they would be aligning their goals and purposes. Again, that doesn't mean agreeing about everything, but it means unity through individually striving to live like Jesus, which we find that model in Scripture. And through that, we become one spirit, one mind, with one mission. When the church is united, the world is changed. Jesus said when the church is united, when we are one, then the world will know that Jesus is Lord. So conduct matters because our behaviors and actions can be the difference between division and unity. It matters because when we care about living like Jesus, and when we make efforts to pursue that goal, it can unite the church. And then after all that scripture we read today, we come to chapter 2. And Paul says, therefore. And that's how it starts. And I've said this before, but every time you see the word therefore, you have to go back and see what comes before to understand what comes next. And what came before is everything we just looked at today. So, in conclusion, everything we just talked about and studied, don't forget it, because next week, next week, everything we study will be contingent on what we just covered. So, in conclusion, conduct matters because it testifies to the world around us about Jesus. People see our actions and our behavior, and they take note of it. Conduct matters because it verifies our unity with Jesus. It verifies to people that we are in a relationship with him and that we are being worked on by the Holy Spirit. And conduct matters because it can unify the church. Now, as we go into our weeks, remember this. The key point here is not that you need to be a perfect person. That's not what I'm saying. The key point is that conduct matters. It's a starting point. It's a truth to accept. That is the key point. If conduct matters to God, it should matter to us. And once we accept that truth, and that's all that really I'm, I'm saying here, is once we accept that truth, then we can allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and to begin to make us more and more like Jesus every day. And my prayer for all of us, myself included, is that we would all be willing and ready to accept that truth so that our lives would be living testimonies, verifying the gospel, and that our unity will bring the world around us to Jesus. Father God, I thank you for this day. I thank you for all the blessings you've given us. I thank you for the gift of spring. I just ask that as we go into our weeks, into a world that is broken and hurting and that needs you, that you would just help us to be lights to those around us. And that through our actions and words, we would do nothing to embarrass you, but that we would be an example for others to see and to follow. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.